Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. Previously on Climbing Gold. People had started hearing about this place called Patagonia. I don't think there's anywhere in the modern world that's as remote as Saratori would have felt in the 1950s. Tony, Tony, Tony. But unlike the other teams, Mari would actually say the thing that everyone was thinking. He said, we are coming back alive from the impossible Saratori. It's a great story. Um, the problem is it, it, it didn't happen. This is part two of The Greatest Lie. A four-part series about one of climbing's greatest controversies. Sometimes, righting a wrong comes at a cost. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitzka Hall. And I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. This is Climbing Gold. Chapter two, Disneyland. It's 1970, and Chaser and Maestri is back on Saratori. This time, he's got a score to settle. He's been slighted by his fiercest rival, the Italian climber Carlo Mari. After being doubted by the climbing community for his supposed ascent of Saratori a decade earlier, this time, nothing will stop Maestri from forging a new route up Saratori. He's come prepared with a big team and a serious budget. For this route, Maestri had acquired a new sponsor, Atlas Copco. They don't make boots or ropes or pitons or anything like that. They make heavy machinery, Things like drills and air compressors. So he's sponsored by this construction company, and they actually have a helicopter drop off all their kit at base camp, including this wooden hut. But they still need to get the compressor and the rest of the gear up the glacier to the mountain. Maestri is clearly determined to make a statement. So imagine this compressor, right? It's like a small engine. And then imagine dragging that engine and all the fuel you need to power it up this complicated web of talus and ice and glacier. And Maestri said himself that the bolting kit alone weighed like 400 pounds. And on top of all of this, it's winter. And Maestri and the team, they're about to spend months in one of the harshest environments on Earth. So they navigate the lower section of the route, which requires this pretty skillful mix of aid climbing, free climbing, mixed climbing. Maestri and his team reach what is now known as the 90-meter bolt traverse. Maestri, he fires up the compressor, and in a fit of apparent rage, he fires in like 100 bolts straight across the face to the right. And even loyal Fava, who's with him on this next climb, he thought it was totally insane. And he was like begging Maestri to ditch the compressor and just climb. But, you know, Atlas Copco had paid for the trip, and Maestri wasn't really interested in changing his tactics. So Maestri's bolt ladders, first off, they're not what we kind of consider modern bolts. They're not expansion bolts. They're what they call pressure pitons. Maybe the most comparable thing that we can think of is like a drilled angle. I mean, you don't have to engage with the rock at all. You can just clip one, clip the other, clip the other. Again, this is Kelly Cordes, alpinist, journalist, and author of The Tower, a chronicle of climbing and controversy on Saratora. After the traverse, Maestri and his team, they go down. They've had enough of the winter storms. Maestri himself said that it snowed like 60 feet during their expedition. But the task, it isn't over. And just a few months later, Maestri is back. By December, which 
is summer in Patagonia. Maestri is once again staring up the beautiful headwall of the southeast face, a clean swath of golden granite. The headwall does have natural lines and features, cracks running up it, but Maestri ignores all of it. Bolt after bolt after bolt, he forces his way straight up the face. It's just mind-bending. You are like, wow. Honestly, I had this like strange bit of awe for Maestri. I mean, what a maniac. Like, like for real, like that level of obsession to, to haul up this thing. Yeah, basically it's a jackhammer. Maestri covers the route on the southeast ridge with hundreds of bolts, establishing what would become known, fittingly, as the compressor route. Kelly, what do you think the first time you saw the compressor route? I've only climbed in the Chalten Massif twice, actually. And the first time was the 2006-2007 season when I went down there with Colin Haley. Colin Haley is one of America's best alpinists and uh, a friend of the show. He's been on several times before. And I would actually just say a friend because I've climbed with him quite a lot, both in Patagonia and in, in other parts of the world over the years. I am a climber originally from Seattle. And um, I'm now 38 years old. I've been climbing for the past 23 years or so. And Patagonia has been, I'd say, the most special place in my climbing career and where I've done like the largest proportion of climbing that I'm proud of. I mean, when you do the math on how much time Colin has spent in Patagonia, it actually makes you a little bit sad for him. <laughs> You're like, I think that's too much time in Shelton. I mean, Colin is in Patagonia right now. You're like, what a freaking psycho. It's winter time there. You know, I was like, doesn't he know what the hemispheres are all about? I had just returned from Pakistan. I'm just like tired and lazy. I don't have unlimited motivation. You know, I'm not like Colin. And Colin started bugging me and calling me like, dude, let's go to Patagonia. Let's go to Patagonia. I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. I'm busy. Like I got a, I don't know, piano lessons or something. I'm just like trying to put him off and he keeps bugging me. He's like a little kid, like poking you, you know, come on, come on, let's go to Patagonia. I'm like, dude, leave me alone. I'm going to call your mom. Like, stop. And, and then Colin, I remember at one point he goes, dude, you know, you can keep talking about go to Patagonia all your life. Or you can actually suck up and make it happen. <laughs> like a little bastard. And so he like shamed me into buying the ticket. Basically from when I was 12 years old, I decided that my goal in life was to climb Cerro Torre. Just before our flights home, we thought the trip was gonna be a wash. And, and so Colin and, I, Colin and I went up and yeah, had a pretty good adventure on Cerro Torre. We did the first complete ascent of this long ice route on the south face of Cerro Torre called Los Tiempos Perdidos. So you climbed up the south face, but then descended the compressor route. What was that like? So I had read about the compressor route, and I had seen some photos, and I'm like, well, yeah, you know, okay, so there's a few bolt ladders here and there, you know, like, it sounds like the guy went a little overboard, you know? But when I saw it on the way down, I was just dumbfounded. You're standing on the engine block, this 150-pound engine block that is the, the compressor itself. He was completely ignoring all natural features and just like, oh, holy shit, talk about determination. This seemed like the work of a madman. After all that work, transporting the compressor halfway around the world, hauling it up the mountain and drilling hundreds of bolts, Maestri actually stops just short of the summit. 
And as alpinist Josh Wharton explains, it wasn't just that Maestri stopped below the summit. As many other climbers would eventually see for themselves, Maestri had chopped the last handful of his bolts. Saying that it would be impossible for anyone to climb it without his bolts and it would teach everyone a lesson. Beyond that lays this final stretch of blank rock before the summit snow mushroom. And he claimed that that part of the mountain was... Not really the mountain. Ephemeral. After all this trace of his passages, bam, 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 bolts every fucking where. They just disappear. Like, I don't know, what was it, 70 feet or so below the top of the headwall. And to top it all off, Maestri, he, he abandons the compressor. He just leaves it there. It's bolted to the face, thousands of feet up Cerro Torre, and it still sits there today. So despite not making the summit a second time, Maestri returned home victorious again to a crowd of cheering supporters. And in a final response to Maori and those who had doubted him, he made a statement that he'd go on to repeat time and time again. Impossible mountains do not exist, but only mountaineers who are not able to climb them. It's a middle finger the size of Saratori. So Alex, like when it comes to the compressor route, is there like can you think of another climbing travesty as as big as this one? There's obviously like Warren Harding on the the wall of early morning light, but it doesn't even seem in the same range. And when you think of the the like kind of possessed madman drilling bolts, I think of Warren Harding drilling the bolt ladders on the nose through the night, like to get to the summit, because I think hand drilling bolts takes a degree of madness. You know, you're just like, tink, 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 like all night long. Like that requires a degree of fanaticism and and sort of next level commitment that I just don't know if using a compressor, it's just not the same thing. Why do you think climbers weren't as livid about the compressor route at the time? I mean, if you had bolted a compressor to the side of El Cap, I mean, not only would the National Park Service get involved, but other climbers would have been livid. You know, whereas on Saratoria, it's so hard to get there that everyone is a little bit more tolerant. You know, sort of like, huh, that's weird, but, you know, it's like no one's quite as upset about it. It's such an anomaly, right? It's such an approach that everyone just, like, kind of doesn't even know what to do with it, right? Think think of a normal big wall where you're screaming shit like, send me up something on the tag, or, like, the tag is tangled, and you're, like, screaming up, send that more slack on the compressor cable, you know, and you're like, like, I need more bolts, you know, like, tag me up more bolts and more cable, and then someone down below is screaming, like, we need more fuel for the generator, you know, you're like, oh, my God, it's just like, it's like, what a junk show, you take all the normal junk show of a big wall, and then you compound it with industrial rigging in one of the most remote places on Earth, it's like, it's insane, it's so crazy. Whether it was the work of a madman or just a man who was fueled by resentment and rage, the climbing community didn't really know what to think. Here's Colin again. When it was first established in 1970, there was a lot of controversy at that time because it was totally unprecedented tactics in the world of climbing. Nobody really tried to defend the compressor out as a, a valid approach to alpinism. In our modern digital age, we have a lot of instant access to climbing information. We get it right from the athletes themselves. But in the 1970s, select few print magazines were the main source of information about climbing. And it didn't take long for a lot of those editors to weigh in on what Maestri had done. There was a cover story that said Cerro Torre, a mountain desecrated. 
In the magazines, they weren't just criticizing Maestri's compressor route. They were also starting to become a lot more vocal about his claimed 1959 ascent as well. The main magazine that everybody looked at in those days was Mountain Magazine from England. And the editor was uh, Ken Wilson. This is legendary alpinist and friend of the show, Jim Danini. Ken Wilson is a very opinionated guy. And uh, he was publishing a lot of articles saying that they couldn't have done the climb, Maestri and Egger. Given the amount of time that they were on the climb and bad weather at the time and the state of the art of climbing in those days, this didn't seem likely that they had done it. And despite the rumblings and murmurs amongst the print magazines and small group of climbers who knew anything about the mountains of Patagonia, back in Italy, it was business as usual. In 1974, a strong team of Italian climbers from the Ragni d'Alecco, which had once been the home of Maestri's rivals Mari and Bonatti, they head back to Serratore. The 1974 team, uh, led by Casimiro Ferrari, great climber, they went down there and launched this big siege expedition up the west face and climbed what was for a long time people call it the Ferrari route, aka the west face route, aka the Ragni route or Ragni Deleco route. It's now properly known as the true first ascent of Serratore. I would say this, it's a, it's a very significant route. This is Matteo Della Bordella, an Italian alpinist that we heard from in chapter one. Casimir Ferrari was the leader of the group. Initially, the team is composed of 12 climbers, but after 30 days of storms on the glacier and with their food rations dwindling, they only had enough resources to send four climbers up. And then these four guys, Casimiro Ferrari, Mario Conti, uh, Pino Negri, and Daniele Chiappa, eventually, at the very end, managed to, to go to the summit of Torre. When, when they got to the summit, uh, they were so happy and so proud of the world group that one of them took out uh, his red pullover. The red pullover is the, the characteristic uh, clothes from Marini di Lecco. So he took out the, the red pullover. They made uh, a uh, snowman, and uh, they put in the red pullover. And that meant uh, the, the other guys that had to renounce uh, in order to allow them to reach the summit, no? So that was their uh, uh, dedication, their, um, uh, their thoughts to, to the other guys, which still were part of this achievement. Matteo, do you... And I guess the whole Ragni Deleco, do you consider the ascent to the West Face the true first ascent of Cerro Torre? Casimiro Ferrari was asked several times this question and he never answered. Or better, his answer was, in 1974, we climbed, we got to the top. And uh, I don't know about the rest. I only know I got to the top. So that has always been his official uh, answer and the position of uh, our group. So our group uh, has uh, nothing against Maestri, and uh, that's the official position of the group. It didn't change anything among Maestri supporters. The thing is, among Maestri supporters, who were mostly entrenched in the Trentino region, this, this wasn't just a climb. I mean, this represented something far greater for them. So up until this point, the doubts around Maestri's 1959 ascent, they were based on just that. It was just doubt, right? Things might have not lined up exactly, and people had you know, started to wonder, but there wasn't really any proof. They didn't really have any evidence. But that was about to change. 
We'll be back with more after the break. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. Their Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. (laughs) I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. Jim, back in the 70s, what did you think about Maestri's claimed first ascent of Saratoria? Did you believe him? I believe they climbed it. Because uh, Maestri was a really good climber in the Dolomites, had a great record. And climbers usually don't lie about their first ascents. So in 1974, Jim decided to head down to Patagonia and see the fabled mountains for himself. I was down there with uh, John Bragg and then two British climbers, Ben Campbell Kelly. Brian Weibull showed up. Cerro Torre had been climbed, but at that time, Torre Egger had not been climbed, nor had Cerro Stanhart. It was our first trip, so we thought we'd try Cerro Stanhart because it looked like the easier of the two. Despite making a few attempts, his team was thwarted by Patagonia's notorious weather, which was especially bad that season. But as fate would have it, the team, they weren't going home completely empty-handed. We're coming out of the um, cirque in bad weather, and I saw a fox over by a pile of rocks. And I thought, what's what's a fox doing here? We're miles and miles from the nearest blade of grass or, 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 or forest. Got over there and the fox was eating some remains. It turns out it was Tony Egger. On the day after Christmas, almost 16 years after he went missing on Saratori, Jim and his partners had just stumbled on the remains of Tony Egger. In the 16 years since then, he had come down glacier, in the glacier, very far. In fact, a lot of people think that how could Tony Egger's body have gotten to where it did get to if he had actually uh, been at the base of Cerro Torre? Because it was so far from the you know, start of the climb that it just didn't seem likely. But those glaciers move very rapidly. After the discovery of Tony Egger in 1974, the climbing world was a buzz. Now there were even more questions to be answered. The camera was supposedly with Egger, but it's not found, but there was something else that was also pretty strange about what they found. That there's a really puzzling, really baffling rope configuration that was found with Tony Egger's remains when they emerged from the glacier. The rope configuration found on Tony Egger's body is very confusing. And looking at the diagram doesn't make any sense to me. But realistically, I wouldn't have understood how to do rope work in the late 1950s anyway. 
because it was just such a different there were the ropes were different the technology available is different you know the whole all the systems are different but even still it doesn't really make sense but for me I'm, I'm totally comfortable just assuming that they were in the midst of some thing you know like trying to repel in some weird way or like doing something unusual and then something went sideways or they got struck by an avalanche and and tony died it, it doesn't really make sense it could be maybe a failed crevasse rescue attempt. I have a diagram and photo of it in my book, but nobody knows for sure because, you know, my street never came clean. So even with the weird, confusing rope setup, Jim Danini still believed that Maestri and Egger, they could have climbed territory. So they went back in 1975 to attempt the neighboring Tory Egger, which had been named after Tony Egger following his death. So our decision was to go down and repeat the uh, Maestri Egger route to the Cola Conquest. And then from the Cola Conquest, go up Tori Egger. So when we first got there and we started climbing, there's about a thousand vertical feet that you do. It's very steep. And it goes to a triangular shaped snow ice field. The triangular snow field is about a thousand feet up on the lower east face of Cerro Torre to get to the north face where Maestri's 1959 claim was you have to approach it kind of from the east. And this triangular snowfield, a thousand feet up, is something that anybody going to the north face of Cerritore from that side of the massif is probably going to climb. So we climbed that section and we found all sorts of artifacts left behind by Maestri and Egger. Old bolts, shards of rope, wooden wedges. It was like climbing through history. I was really into it. And the weather was coming in, so we had to bail at that point. But we saw on this ledge there was snow and ice built up on it, but we could see some things sticking out. And we dug around. There was a couple of packs left behind by Maestri and Egger in 1959. The stash of gear, they would have needed it up higher. And things, they didn't really seem quite right to Jim. And he started to have some doubts about Maestri's ascent. So I led the last pitch going to that equipment dump. There was a rope fixed an old rope, and there was a pitons. They aided that section, and there was carabiners for every piton, and the rope was clove-hitched to about every other piton. I said, what, what's that all about? It seems suspicious. But then the bad weather moves back in, and it forces Jim and his teammates to wrap back down to the glacier. It would be a while before they could get back on the climb. Well, we finally got back on the route. We had some good weather, and we got up to our high point. We had left some fixed ropes. And then we climbed to the Cola Conquest. In the first thousand feet, Danini and the team, they found hundreds of artifacts. But then it just stops. And in this next 1,800 feet, nothing. We didn't find a single thing. The fact that Jim and his partners didn't find any more maestri artifacts on the, the upper part of the route isn't 100% conclusive, because who knows what could have happened, I suppose. But it's pretty strong evidence that no one had ever been up there, especially when you consider just how much material Maestri and Egger had left behind on the bottom parts of the route. Uh, you know, the bottom of the route was littered with pitons and ropes and, and you know, old wooden wedges crammed into the cracks, like it's just all kinds of stuff. And then above the triangle snowfield, there's nothing. And so it's just hard to imagine that they suddenly went from leaving tons of gear to leaving no gear. But what sealed it for me was the description that Maestri gave of the upper part of the climb. Anyone who's done any real climbing in the mountains knows that sometimes you, you'll get to a place where it's actually a lot different than it looked from below. There's hidden passages, and that's exactly what happened. 
from below, you can see there's three distinct sections. There's the steep thousand feet that goes up to the equipment dump in a triangular-shaped ice field. Then there's a longer distance, and it's lower angle. It looks easier. Then you go around this, this corner that you get to, and there's about a 400-foot traverse to the Call of Conquest. From below, you look up at the route, and the traverse, the 400-foot traverse, looks really difficult. It looks like a blank wall. You think it's going to be artificial aid. And that's what Maestri said. He said that, that was very difficult. He also said that the section from the triangular-shaped ice field to that corner was a lot easier. And it looks like it would be easier because it's lower angle. So that's his description. When we got on the climb, we found that that uh, 1,500 vertical feet to the corner, even though it was lower angle, was not easy at all. It was quite hard. The, the real terrain, the actual climbing terrain to get to the Coal Conquest was night and day different from what Maestri had described. But you could only know that if you'd actually climbed it. Then we got to the corner. You couldn't see what we saw unless you were right there. You turn around, you turn the corner, and there's a hidden ledge going into the Call of Conquest. You can't see it from below. So it was the exact opposite from what Maestri claimed. And he has it had his assessment from looking at it from below. And for more than a decade now, Maestri's lie, it's been pretty easily obscured by the fact that no one else is really going down there. Patagonia is super remote, right? But the more climbers that start to visit and start to try to climb Cerro Torre, the more evidence they accumulate. And while it might not have been totally conclusive, for Danini, what he found, it was enough. So I knew then that not only had they not climbed Cerro Torre, but they hadn't been to the Cola of Conquest. We'll be back with more after the break. Element is a zero sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Wood Barrel Bourbon Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I choose. They're offering new customers 20% off any purchase with the code CLIMBINGGOLD. Or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. I don't know. It's easy to lie about an ascent in some remote corner of Pakistan, but it's really hard to lie about an ascent on El Capitan in Yosemite because people can watch you climb. And so, you know, Saratoria back in the day felt like the most remote corner of the earth. And so it was easy to, to lie about something and assume that nobody would ever know the truth. But as Saratoria has become more popular and as, as Patagonia has become more accessible, it's becoming more and more like the Yosemite of South America. I mean, people go, people see it, people can judge the truth for themselves. And it's just obvious that my history did not, in fact, climb Saratoria. 
But Maestri, he hadn't just made one claim descent, he'd made two. And climbers, they started getting curious about the Southeast Ridge. The compressor route was surely the easiest route up Serratore, and it would only be a matter of time before someone tried to repeat it. So in 1979, the legendary Yosemite stone master, the late Jim Birdwell, he decided it was his turn to try. So on his first trip to Patagonia, he goes down there with two other partners. The two partners get like a real-life glimpse of the storms and the scale of the peaks, and they turn around, you know, fuck this, we're going home. And luckily for Birdwell, he ran into another American climber named Steve Brewer. Basically, it sounds like an American climbing bum who had been roaming around South America and had like a good season climbing in in uh, Peru and Bolivia and then kept going farther south. And in late December, shows up down there in the shadow of the Chalten Massif. Bridwell basically talks him into going climbing and trying the, the Maestri route on Cerratore, uh, the compressor route. The two, they head up Cerro Torre's southeast face, and they make pretty quick work of the relatively moderate climbing down low on the route. And then they come to him, where Maestri seems to have flipped a switch. It's mind-blowing. Um, just boom, boom, boom. So hundreds and hundreds of bolts and bolt ladders going all the way up. So signs of Maestri's prior passage everywhere. 80 feet of just pristine, unbolted, unscarred, Untouched granite lies between them and the top of the headwall, the snow that begins the summit mushroom. Bridwell, he's perplexed. He's like, what what happened? Where did it go? There were signs of passage everywhere. And now, absolutely nothing. Bridwell took out his aid kit and got to work using a mixture of rivets, knife blade pitons, and copperheads to reach the top of the headwall. There, he pulled on his crampons and started battling the insane overhanging rime ice mushroom. It, it defies belief to imagine that, that Maestri suddenly just like danced up this, <laughs> this terrain without any trace of passage after sieging the thing over the course of two seasons, spending months up there Everybody believes that Maestri's high point was about 80 feet below the top of the headwall on the Southeast Ridge. And therefore, truly, the, the first ascent of the Southeast Ridge of Saratore belongs to Jim Bridwell and Steve Brewer in 1979. For Bridwell, this was a dream come true. I mean, a dream many, many years in the making. Bridwell Reflecting on their climb, later wrote, if you're not scared, you're not having fun. If that's true, Saratore is worth a couple of years at Disneyland. Bridwell and Brewer, they're the first to actually reach the summit of Saratore from the southeast. And in doing so, they add to this growing cloud hovering over Maestri. Not only he had probably not climbed Saratore in 1959, but it sure seemed like he hadn't climbed it in 1970 either. The years passed. Climbing gear goes through an incredible period of innovation where cams, sticky rubber, better ice climbing equipment, they all help climbers push the limits of possible. But Saratori remains extremely difficult. And even if the Maestri route might have been done in quote unquote poor style, 
Many climbers just accept it as a necessary evil to getting to the top of one of the most coveted summits on the planet. The unpredictability of the storm still make for an unforgettable adventure. Alex, what do you think it was like to climb in Patagonia pre-internet, pre-weather forecasting? Yeah, I think climbing in Patagonia pre-internet and pre-modern weather forecasting would have been incredibly stressful. And there's the obvious reason that it'd be stressful, which is that you'd get caught in storms all the time, which and the storms are catastrophically strong. And so that would be challenging. There are stories of the wind would lift people off the wall at a hanging belay. And then when the wind stops, drops them back down, they shock load their anchor. Like just horrifying, horrifying wind. You can't even stand up right on the glacier. But I actually think the hardest part about climbing in Patagonia would have been sort of getting back up over and over again. Like each time you go out, you get knocked down by terrible weather. And then each time you have to get back up and be like, let's try it again tomorrow. And so imagine, you know, you, 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 you and your partner just got your asses kicked down there. You barely survived. You make it down. All you want to do is rest. And then you get out of your tent one night and you look up and the stars are out. Like, oh, fuck, you know, what do we do? Do, do, do I just go back to sleep and pretend I never saw anything? Or do you, do you wake up your buddy and be like, come on, we got to go. The stars are out. Yeah, I think that the, <laughs> the good weather might actually be scarier than the storms. Totally. Because I think when there's a storm, you're like, well, at least we get to stay in the tent and read all day. But then, yeah, if you pop out in the middle of the night to take a leak and you see nothing but stars and you're like, oh, it's clear and it's not windy. And you're like, "Uh oh, should I get everybody up right now? And we should start hiking in and start climbing right now because this is our chance. Knowing that in seven hours, you're probably going to get destroyed by some epic windstorm again. That's why I like to start these things in the dark. You know, you, you can't see what you're getting into. It just makes it easier. It's like it's like when my dog hides when the vacuum cleaner comes out. You know, it's just like okay, I don't know, I don't have to look at what I'm marching up to the base of. It's too scary. Kelly, what was it like in El Shelton in the '80s and '90s? In the '80s and '90s, people were increasingly drawn. Climbers were increasingly drawn to the Chalten Massif. In 1985, El Chalten finally becomes a town. They build a bridge over the river, so it's a little easier to get to the mountains. It's all these little steps that that enable access and visitation over time. And then you get your kind of communal knowledge starts to grow and more and more things start to get done. But at the same time, like, Saratori hasn't gotten any easier. Here's Colin Haley again. The compressor route just became the normal thing and people were wet, even if they thought it was weird. They're like, oh, yeah, there's this crazy bolt ladder on Saratori and that's how people climb it. So over time, as climbers start going to Saratoria more and more, you know, there's this natural question that arises about the 1959 line. I mean, people want to know who did the first ascent of a mountain. It's, it's a big part of our, our lore, our history. It contributes to how we view things. And so people are trying to climb or repeat, as many people have thought, Maestri's route or at least come close to it. And people are just getting beat down left and right. It's really, really hard. Each year, some of the best alpinists of each generation come down to Patagonia and throw themselves at the north face of Saratori. The climbing is actually brutally hard. And as they progress, it's starting to become more and more accepted that Maestri had truly been lying. And all of that really came to an unequivocal close in 2005 with the first ascent of El Arca de los Vientos by Alessandro Beltrami, Hermano Salvatera, 
and Rolando Garibaldi. Hermano Salvatera first visited Patagonia in 1982 with his eyes set on Saratori. Over the next few decades, he'd established a number of new routes on Saratori and spent over 130 days on the mountain, earning the nickname the Man of Saratori. Hermano is the greatest climber Saratori has ever seen. His resume of what he's done there, nobody else can stack up to Hermano. Hermano first tried to climb on the North Face in 1992, and even then, he still believed Maestri. In an article for Alpinist magazine, he'd written, I had known Maestri for a long time, and I admired his strength and stubbornness. It hadn't occurred to me yet that those very qualities, combined with his drive to succeed, might overpower his ethics. But by 2005, that would change. After establishing a new line on Saratori's East Face the year before, Hermano assembled a team to try the North Face again. And so you had Hermano, who was in his 50s at the time. You had Alessandro, who lives in the village, same village as Hermano, a young, strong climbing guide you know, from the Trentino province in Italy. Rolando is a phenomenal climber, absolute phenom. Had done a lot of climbing down there already. And he's a very, very keen historian of Saratori. He knows more about Saratori than anybody. On the team's first attempt, they were thwarted 300 meters from the summit by bad weather. And Armano, he wasn't sure if he'd have another shot. But just a few days later, he was back. Starts on the east side, finishes up the north face, covers all kinds of terrain Maestri claims to have covered. They actually complete it to the summit. First time, unequivocally, that Saratori had been climbed from the north in history. The climb was a huge accomplishment for the whole team in and of itself, especially for Romano. But for him, it also served to put to rest the question of Maestri's 1959 supposed ascent. They find zero trace of Maestri's passage. It was the final nail in the coffin. Everybody but the most delusional had to accept the fact that Maestri's 1959 story was a lie. And to add insult to injury, Romano, Rollo, and Alessandro are also Italian, though Rolo had been living in Argentina, which fueled a strong reaction back home in Italy. There was a big fallout back in Italy over it. Uh, Maestri hired a lawyer, tried to sue those guys for defamation. People didn't want to believe it. For most climbers, the ascent of El Arco de los Vientos on the north face of Saratore, it marked the end of the debate about Maestri's 1959 supposed ascent. And by this time, while the establishment of the compressor route remained pretty controversial, climbers were largely willing to look past it, and the compressor route became the most popular way to the summit of Saratore. By a long shot. By the early 2000s, the compressor route had been climbed over a hundred times. If you totaled up all the ascents on the mountain, from the other routes, there were only around a dozen ascents. And with so many climbers getting on the compressor route, it was really only a matter of time before they started looking outside the line of the bolts. The idea of climbing the, the Southeast Ridge by fair means, that had been around for quite a while. It's never been just about getting to the top. It's about how you do it. The winds of change were coming to Patagonia. Old Patagonia had been defined by remoteness. But by the early 2000s, the internet and weather forecasts were making their way to Elshell 10. And with that, a new generation of stronger, bolder climbers was starting to make their way south. So our idea was, yeah, to go down and try to climb the South Ridge without the bolts. And if successful, 
maybe take the bolt out. A new era was emerging. Welcome to New Patagonia. Next time on Climbing Gold. It's never been just about getting to the top. It's about how you do it. It's all about rising to the occasion of the mountains. As soon as we started clipping the bolts, it was as if we'd failed anyway. Somebody should take out the bolts, but I think nobody wanted to be the one. Instead of avoiding the natural challenges of the mountain, you more or less embrace them. Uh, my name is Hayden Kennedy. My name is Jason Crook. They were both just really fucking good climbers. They both had this really youthful enthusiasm that drove them to do all the things that they did. I am more for creation as opposed to destruction. Still one of the most bitchin' lines I've ever seen. A big thanks to Kelly Cordes for helping us tell the story. Kelly's book, The Tower, A Chronicle of Climbing and Controversy on Territory, inspired this series. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was written by Lauren Delaney Miller and Evan Phillips. Creative direction and story supervision by me, Fitzcahal. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Evan Phillips, who also created the original score for this series. Additional music by Baleen, courtesy of Track Club. Our theme music is by Brennan O'Connell. Skylar Perwins is our YouTube and social media editor. Our executive producer, Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy for RxR Sports. And Lisey Hendricks and Becca Cahal for Duct Tape Then Beer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>